when I was in industry, I recall distinctly sitting in a cubicle farm and wondering, what does my faith have to do with my work now as an engineer? I was raised in reform circles, so I had the instinct that it mattered, but I didn't know how to connect the dots so well. And so that question really resonated with me. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Athens representing culture, of course, and Jerusalem representing faith. I mean, that's a bigger question that goes back to this early church father and uh you know, basically is an expression of what does Christ have to do with culture? What, what does faith have to do with culture? And what do bites have to do with beliefs? And so that began my own journey of kind of exploring and learning about that. And what I discovered through being mentored by wiser professors at uh, Redeemer at the time and by mentors and by reading on the subject is that it really does matter. God cares about technology. Our faith does not hinder us from cultural participation, but it actually equips us to be able to be salt and light in those different areas. It's a response of obedience to God's command to unfold the latent potential in creation. A former professor at Calvin University, the late Gordon Spikeman, put it this way, nothing matters but the kingdom, but because of the kingdom, everything matters. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason, but then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, being human in an age of artificial intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? My guest today is Dr. Derek Shurman, a professor of computer science at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His academic interests include pedagogy, computing in the majority world, embedded systems, and robotics and computer vision. His other increasingly passionate interest lies in issues relating to faith and computer technology. He's addressed these issues in two books, one from 2013 called Shaping a Digital World, Faith, Culture, and Computer Technology, and another just published last month called A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. On today's show, we'll dive into Derek's work on Christianity and code, as it were, and come away with both philosophical and practical ways to live out our faith in the world of bits, bites, and bugs. Derek Sherman, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, wonderful to join you here. I want to clarify that I'm saying your name right. Yeah, Sherman is fine. Yeah. the. Do you have another way? Yeah, the Dutch pronunciation is too guttural, so you could stick Sherman? with Sherman. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, for the audience, Sherman in, you know, more English-oriented places is S-H-E-R-M-A-N, and yes. Sherman is S-C-H-U-U-R-M-A-N. And as I understand it, that's man from the barn. Yes, barn man, to be precise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, Derek. My last go. name is from Northern Holland as well, so we'll kick in. I'm enjoying the meme, how it started 
how it's going these days. So let's start our conversation through that lens on the topic of computer science pedagogy, one of your academic interests. Now, without wading too far into the weeds with a full-on history of computer science education through the decades, give us a brief take on where CS educators are focusing their efforts in 2022, especially in light of big trends in data science, machine learning, and AI. What, what things are the same and what's different, both technically and culturally, since you entered the field some 20 years ago? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was an undergraduate student, even longer ago, between school and becoming a professor, I worked in industry for about 10 years. So I was in school even longer ago. And at that time, you know, the way that computer science was taught is you remote logged into a mini computer or mainframe of some sort, and you did everything from the command line. The tools were expensive. The hardware was large. And we had at the University of Waterloo, where I attended, something called the Red Room, where you could peer through windows down into this huge room, which had machines with blinking lights and men in white lab coats running around, caring for the machines and feeding them. And since then, things have come a long way, of course. In industry, I did a lot of embedded systems. And so I worked with small microcomputers that were just beginning to find their ways into robots and, you know, motor drives and vehicles and material handling systems and those sorts of things. But when I finally returned to teach myself after about a decade or so, and after completing my PhD, things were different. And some of the most exciting things were, while there was the hardware changes, of course, you know, the large mini computers had sort of given way to laptops and desktops that were of uh, comparable performance. I used something called the Sun Workstation when I did my master's degree, which is what all the cool kids were using in, in research back then. So the hardware has changed. And of course, now it's ridiculous that you can have a multi-core processor on a small, modest laptop with you know performance that's many, many times that of these machines of yesteryear. But the software has also changed. One of the big change trends, especially that I picked up on in the 90s, was the sort of birth of the open source software movement. So back when I was an undergrad, it was very expensive to buy a compiler and you needed to use the machines at school in order to do anything substantial. Desktop PCs were still you know, running DOS and were quite modest. And of course, nowadays with uh, specifically Linux, the Linux operating system and the GNU C compiler, some of these tools that are now freely available has really revolutionized you know, the ability of students and computer science programs to not only use code, but actually look at the source code and to contribute to code. New languages come along, you know, uh, C and Pascal were big when I was young. Now it's Python is is popular, uh, Java. We went through a phase of C and C++. There's been a lot of changes on the language front as well, and, and everyone's got their favorite language. I, you know, the development tools, the, the integrated development environments now are very helpful. Back when I was coding, we were using editors like VI. I don't know, maybe some of your listeners go back that far. Text inline editors in a terminal and now, of course, with large integrated development environments and tools like VS Code, for instance, coding and development has become and GitHub, tools like GitHub, source code integrity tools have, have made a big difference. But also the content of a lot of computer science
besides education has morphed somewhat. You know, machine learning has become huge and a significant part of the computer science landscape. But with that said, you know, there's still a lot of things that endure. You know, the basic courses I took back when I was an undergrad looked at things like data structures and algorithms. And largely, a lot of those topics haven't changed. In fact, the classic sort of book on those topics, The Art of Computer Programming by Donald Knuth, is still found on the shelf of most computer scientists. And it is, you know, includes topics that, you know, there's been development to be sure, but a lot of these ideas are are sort of at the foundation of computer science and haven't changed as much. And even modern operating systems like Windows and Linux use algorithms that were developed decades ago for disk scheduling and memory management and all these sorts of things, you know. So there's a lot changing, but there's also a lot that stays the same in a sense as well. So from an educator perspective, a professor in a university, and you're thinking about preparing students for, you know, jobs right after college, how has it changed in terms of what skills you have to have in this environment when the big topics are AI and machine learning? And those are the kinds of skills that companies are looking for when they're scouring for talent. Yeah, so I advise all of my students to sort of include in their selection of courses those sorts of topics. I think computer engineering, the engineering side, software engineering rather, is a really important topic. Knowing how to make real software in the real world, understanding tools like Git and GitHub, you know, the agile software development process. When I worked in industry in the 90s, these things were not very mature. There were books written at the time with titles like the software death march and uh, (laughs) things like that, which basically I think came out of a need to have a much more refined understanding of software engineering techniques to make sure that you wouldn't end up with these ridiculous situations where people committed to software projects that took three years and in reality and promised them in six months and you'd have coders and engineers working stupid hours and uh, trying to deliver. And of course, that never ended happily for anyone. So I think there's a much better understanding of some of those techniques and our students need to know those sorts of things and, and be familiar with those tools. Well, so one of the things one of the things you mentioned, Derek, is GitHub, which is an open source. Is it a repository? Mm-hmm. It's a platform where computer scientists can post their code and have it worked on by other people. And I know this was this is a huge cultural shift from maybe even 20 years ago, certainly further back, especially in within some companies that shall go unnamed. How do you find the open source shift affects the pedagogy of what you're doing? I mean, there's a lot of feedback, maybe that's not such proprietariness, as it were. Yeah. So I, uh, for years, was a very strong open source evangelist, I might even say. You know, when I first started as a computer science professor, I worked in a very small college, uh, Christian University. I, I wasn't at Calvin at the time. I was at a small Canadian university, and I was a one-person department with a minimal budget. <laughs> I was, you know, chief bottle washer and cook and professor, and I ran the lab and so on. And open source was wonderful because it enabled us in that setting with a modest budget to be able to use the tools that large corporations were using and to be able to see what was going on inside. So, I mean, it was quite wonderful. And I encourage my students to this day to participate in open source projects. And then when they do graduate and begin looking for work, that they actually have a, you know, a portfolio of projects that they can share with prospective 
prospective employers of, uh, of projects that they've worked on and maybe contributed to, right? I encourage them, if there's a project you love to use, you know, open office or whatever it is, contribute some code and get involved in the community and learn from that experience. There's also the use of open source in some of the projects that we've done overseas. So we've brought Raspberry Pis to West Africa and to, well, actually, South Central Africa to Zambia, to Central America, a couple places for use in K-12 schools. So these little computers that are about the size of a, you know, a, a deck of cards are wonderful machines for teaching and learning and run largely on open source software and have been a real, I think, blessing in communities where access to computing and computer labs and whatnot was very limited and in the majority world. Well, even as you talk, my mind goes metaphoric almost all the time, and I'm feeling like humanity is God's great open source project and our mandate in Genesis to contribute to the code. But let's go on to another area. And in addition to teaching, you've spent a great deal of time thinking and writing about technology ethics through a Christian lens. And in your book, Shaping a Digital World, Faith, Culture, and Computer Technology, you paraphrase Tertullian's famous question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? by asking, what does Silicon Valley have to do with Jerusalem? So unpack that question for us, both in light of Tertullian's original idea and its current ideation in computer science and AI. Yeah. So that was my job. When I was in industry, I recall distinctly sitting in a cubicle farm and wondering, what does my faith have to do with my work now as an engineer? I was raised in reform circles, so I had the instinct that it mattered, but I didn't know how to connect the dots so well. I did not attend a Christian university. I went to a large technical university where I took almost all technical courses, and I had not had the opportunity to kind of think through these things very well. And so when I found myself as a brand new professor, wet behind the ears, having to teach students and for whom, you know, integration of faith and learning was part of my job, I had to figure this out. And so that question really resonated with me. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Athens representing culture, of course, and Jerusalem representing faith. I mean, that's a bigger question that goes back to this early church father and, uh, you know, basically is an expression of what does Christ have to do with culture? What, what does faith have to do with culture? And what do bites have to do with beliefs? And so that began my own journey of kind of exploring and learning about that. And what I discovered through being mentored by wiser professors at uh, Redeemer at the time and by mentors and by reading on the subject is that it really does matter. God cares about technology. Our faith does not hinder us from cultural participation, but it actually equips us to be able to be salt and light in those different areas. It's a response of obedience to God's command to unfold the latent potential in creation. A former professor at Calvin University, the late Gordon Spikeman, put it this way, nothing matters but the kingdom, but because of the kingdom, everything matters. And I think that's what I like about the Reformed tradition, how it has this comprehensive sort of view of redemption, of creation. It's a big cosmic view of all the possibilities in creation, of course, how sin has affected all of this as well, but then also how Christ's cosmic sort of salvage operation is including all of these things in his redemption and how he calls us to participate in that as agents of reconciliation, you know. And so I was able to kind of situate it within that story. And then, of course, the question becomes then, how then shall we compute, right? It's sort of the, the specifics. <laughs> and so, uh, but that flows out of that, of course. But that framework was an important 
important one for me to realize. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get there too. I've got a couple of other questions to sort of are honing in on that very issue. You just mentioned sin, which is an entree to a wonderful chapter that you have in Shaping a Digital World on computer technology and the fall. And you cover several topics in that chapter. I'll get to another one I want to address next. But the first one here is the concept of software errors, often expressed by the more common term software bugs. Now, the history of that term is actually funny, and maybe you can share that story. But bugs, as you note, continue to plague modern computers to this day. So considering the chapter title, I have to ask you, Derek, are computer bugs the result of sin? And if not, how should we view them? Yeah. So my instinctual kind of reaction when I first started thinking about these things is, of course, bugs are due to sin. We don't want them. They're a pain. And of course, the term, as you suggested, goes back to a time in the history of computing where one day a large mainframe stopped computing. I think it was actually Grace Hopper, a famous figure in computer science. And they went to go look at what was going on, and they literally found a bug, a moth trapped in a relay that had actually caused the machine to malfunction. And of course, that isn't a problem with modern solid state electronics. But every time, you know, we encounter these things, we hearken back to that by saying there's a bug in the computer somewhere. But yeah, your question about, you know, is that due to sin, I think is something that after some thought, you know, requires a little bit of nuance. And I think where to begin thinking is thinking about the difference between finiteness and fallenness. So, of course, sin has brought, you know, all kinds of perversion and distortion in technology. Romans 8 tells us that the entire creation is groaning. And, of course, that means everything, including our technology, is affected by sin. But the question is, you know, suppose that the fall had not happened and Adam had gone on and cultural development would have unfolded as I believe it would, and computers, you know, perhaps would have been invented. And would Adam, an unfallen Adam, or one of his descendants, I suppose, would they have been able to write, you know, a million lines of code without a single bug? Um, <laughs> or well, a mistake. I, I, or a mistake. Yeah, I don't believe so. I, I think that we have to realize that even without sin, we're still creatures. We're not God. We're finite. We have finite capabilities. We have limits. And somehow I've speculated that computer bugs are part of just the complexity of computing. Computing is one of the most complex things that humankind engages in. It's, you know, if you think about skyscrapers and bridges and some of the most complex machines that we build, you know, software is right up there, right? Operating systems with tens of millions of lines of code and thousands of person years of, of effort, you know, in order to create. And I don't think that finite beings can write a million lines of code without having some iterative kind of development process. So bugs are part of an iterative process, I think, that's inherent to complex things like computer science and programming. But I would quickly add that, you know, the harmful effect of bugs. So, you know, when you think of there's some classic examples in computer science. The Theric 25 incident where a radiation machine had a software bug and uh, overdosed several patients and leading some to die later as a result or with other such things. I think that would not occur without sin, right? And I think in those cases, we see the harmful effects of bugs being due to sloppiness, not adequate testing, not using best practices, not following good software engineering techniques. Those 
sort of things, I think, come from different sort of aspects of sin. But the idea of the fact that software is iterative and we have to do these different design cycles to refine it might just be part of the nature of coding itself and part of the complexity of what we're dealing with and just part of our finiteness. And of course, the, the thing about finiteness and fallenness is we need to accept the former and fight the latter. And so we need to distinguish between them. I think that's an excellent point. And sometimes we just think about the fall as the whole issue rather than the created nature of people. And I also love your explanation of the immense nature of software code, which seems to be, you know, if you take a horizon of an iceberg, like on the water, you see the tip above, but this giant thing below. And I think a lot of people don't see that giant thing below that's running everything we use right now from our cell phones to our laptops to Netflix, (laughs) everything. So, well, listen, following up on this question, I was going to ask if we'd ever have bug-free code this side of heaven, which is a bit of a rhetorical question, but I think a better one is a more fundamental question. Will we have computers in heaven? And what clues do we find in scripture, perhaps in relation to the use and transformation of other tools we've crafted here on earth? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. You know, I often pose that to my students and they'll respond with, Mom, no, no, there won't be computers in heaven. And then I say, well, will there be harps? They go, oh, yeah, there'll, there'll be harps. And what about pipe organs? Oh, yeah, pipe organs. Well, those are, those are technologies, too. And I think, you know, if you look at the biblical story, it, it begins with a garden, but it ends in a city, which seems to imply, you know, the new heavens and the new earth have a certain amount of cultural development with them as well. They're not just a pristine garden like creation opened with. And then if you, you know, if you read verses like one in Revelation 21, which talks about the honor and glory of the nations being brought in, the kings bringing in the honor and glory of the nations. And and Isaiah 60, which is this wonderful chapter about Zion, about how there'll be flocks and herds and lumber, and even the ships of Tarshish will be there. You know, these pagan, what are often recognized as pagan symbols of commercial power, somehow they appear in Zion, but repurposed in service to the Lord. You know, Micah 4 verse 3 has this verse about how swords will be bent into uh, plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. You know, this idea of technology that was intended for harm, swords and spears being repurposed, being redirected towards instruments for cultivation, what we were originally called to do in, in Genesis. And so I see this sort of movement, you know, and I think there'll be more continuity between the new heavens and the new earth, between now and then, than we think. Of course, it'll be free of sin, and we need to be humble and realize that we see through a glass darkly. We don't really know what a world without sin will look like. But I think I won't be surprised if there's a lot of cultural developments that we'll recognize, including computers. And I go out even more on a limb with my students, and I suggest, you know what? If there's going to be computers, my guess is that they'll be running Linux. But uh, <laughs> but that's just uh, that's just highly speculative. But I think all of the creational possibilities will be there, right? There'll be discontinuity, but I think there'll be a lot of continuity in the new heaven and the new earth with what we experience now as well. Well, our listeners can't see, but behind Derek is a penguin, which is apparently the symbol of the Linux operating system. Yes, the Tux penguin, which is the mascot of Linux. Absolutely. It's on my desk at work and at home or on my shelf. Yes. Well, in regards to what you just said about spears and swords being shaped into different kinds of tools, 
I don't know that I view a computer as a weapon, so to speak. And so, you know, more of it is a calculator. Computers were originally people, right? Is setting aside someone to do sums and math. And we just made a machine to do that. So my mind goes more toward, you know, what's the purpose of a computer on earth and then extrapolating, to use a math term, what it will look like in heaven. So I don't know if that suggests anything to you, but my sanctified imagination wonders what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, you can see how all of creation has this sort of numerical aspect to it, right? I mean, the number is so much part of also the beauty, the order in creation. And so I won't be at all surprised if that continues into the new heavens and the new earth. And of course, if we want to go on to explore and uncover and worship God through sort of uncovering and discovering these things and praising him for them, then a computer would be an awesome tool for that. Yeah. I mean, just thinking of what we don't know about the universe and what we may be able to still explore and work in heaven. Yeah, I I think there'll be a lot to continue to uncover and explore and, and do so in a way that shows love to neighbor and gives glory to God. Yeah. Well, the other question I want to talk to you about from this chapter, Computer Technology and the Fall, is the subject of idolatry. And on page 59, you use the word technicism, which Egbert Schwerman, any relation? Mm-hmm. No. I'm- No. (laughs) (laughs) Refers to in his book, Faith and Hope in Technology, which I think is a clue right there. So talk a bit about the key belief system of technicism and how it acts perhaps opaquely as the underlying worldview in the science of AI. Yeah, technicism, that's a word Egbert Sherman that I, I picked up from Egbert Sherman, a Dutch philosopher, Christian philosopher of technology. And it basically points to, you know, the notion of making an idol out of technology, seeing it as the root to human progress and solving all of our problems, new and old. And John Calvin said half a millennia ago already that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And I think, you know, technology, if we're honest, is one of the idols of our time. And so we just need to be aware of that. And it goes back even further, right? I mean, the original sin in the garden was one of wanting human autonomy, right? And to be able to go it on our own. And I think a lot of people see technology as that route to achieving the new heavens and new earth, but without God, but doing it on our own. It's a kind of technical utopianism, right? I think it's connected a little bit to N.T. Wright writes about this somewhere, Epicureanism being this idea that God is absent. And so it's kind of up to us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and to kind of, you know, through science and technology and the Enlightenment project, achieving progress and seeing that sort of extending into the future to a point where, you know, there might be setbacks along the way, but eventually we'll solve hunger and we'll solve war. And and some people would even go so far as to say we can solve the problem of death with technology, right? There's Ray Kurzweil, who's written about the coming singularity, this notion that we'll be able to download our brains into a computer and live forever, which I think from a Christian perspective is gravely mistaken. I mean, it's a very reductionistic, materialistic view about what it means to be human, that somehow by capturing the random interaction of for the the interaction of particles or electrochemistry of our brains and representing them in a computer that somehow we've captured the essence of what it means to be human. I think if we read the scriptures, we see that the original 
creation of Adam, for instance, you know, he's made up of the stuff of the earth to be sure, but it also requires the breath of God, a living spirit, right? The same with the vision of Elijah and the dry bones, right? It's more than just flesh and organs and body parts. It requires the breath of the Lord to animate them. But this technicism is very wide, wide in scope. It's a trust in technology to solve all our problems, including the problem of death. And so I think this is one of the promises, right? It goes back to the first temptation, right? That somehow you shall not surely die and you can live forever, which, you know, and the Tower of Babel is another story that comes to mind, right? This sort of human project. I tell my students, this is not a, a warning that uh, civil engineering is sinful, but it's, if you read the text, you, you see that people are motivated to build, you know, a tower that reaches to the heavens, to build a bridge between heaven and earth. They're motivated to make a name for themselves, right? Instead of glorifying God's name. And they're also wanting to stay together and not spread out, even though God had, you know, in the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 verse 28, told them to fill the earth. So it, it was an act of disobedience and through technology, trying by their own wits to build a bridge between earth and heaven. And of course, the problem with idols is they don't deliver and often they demand everything. And so it's a different story. It's technology seen with a different story, whereas a Christian would see that the only bridge between heaven and earth is Jesus Christ, quite frankly. Well, interestingly, the Tower of Babel story or Babel is one of scattering humanity and confusing their languages. And I've often used the phrase reverse the curse, which is the technology pathway to, you know, salvation and solving problems. And I think we even see this in language translation software, where you can pretty well take any language now and translate it on the fly back into with one common language. So that barrier is down. But, you know, yeah, I always think about when the Holy Spirit was poured out and as sort of a, and people were speaking, you know, at Pentecost and being able to speak all these different languages, how God's coming kingdom was going to bridge all of those divides. And that goes back to your nations coming into heaven and nations being united. Well, interestingly about Ray Kurzweil, I read the book, The Singularity is Near, and he actually uses the phrase, we'll be able to live as long as we want. And then in parentheses, he says, a subtle distinction from forever. But I've always thought, you know, at what point do I say I'm going to hang up whatever metaphor you're going to hang up, your spurs, your hat, and say I'm done? And also, I don't think he addresses the idea of what happens unintended consequence-wise when you have a whole bunch of old people continuing to <laughs> to stay on the planet. You don't have the cycle right. of, re, you know, replacement going on. You know, I would challenge his presuppositions to begin with. I don't think you could live forever by downloading your brain into a computer. In fact, what I think of is, you know, the words of Psalm 115, which talks about those who put their trust in idols become like them. And so, you know, if you download your brain into a computer, you are a computer, <laughs> uh, basically. So, uh, yeah, that's computational reductionism. Very much so, a reductionistic view of what it means to be human. The other visual that came to me while you were talking about Elijah and the dry bones, and I just listened to a sermon on this recently, was that the TV show Westworld, where they show a body being made at the beginning. 3D uh, printed. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And wondering what it really looked like in that, you know, and then of course I start singing the song. I won't sing right. it now, but dry bones, dry bones. <laughs> yep. Anyway, listen, let's move on to your new book, Derek, which is really, really good. You're one of three authors. Yes. And you guys trade off chapters and do some co-writing, but 
in your chapter titled Beyond Engineering Ethics, and let me go back and say it's a Christian field guide to technology for engineers and designers. And it's a very practical book about living out your faith in the real world of engineering and computer science. Anyway, you set up a sort of prerequisite for the moral life and ethical decision making by pointing to the philosopher Alistair McIntyre's quote, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Now, I love this. It took a little while to unpack it, but I want you to kind of spread it out more. How is the idea of seeing ourselves as part of a story more important or maybe more helpful than relying on these various ethical theories and frameworks and using case studies and trolley problems to make decisions? Yeah, I'm still unpacking this too, but I, um, you know, the typical way that ethics, engineering ethics is taught is through case studies. And so, yeah, the trolley problem and other problems are posed. And then students are encouraged, well, you know, pick one of, you know, the typical ethical frameworks, you know, whether that's deontological ethics or virtue ethics or consequentialism, utilitarianism, and then figure out, okay, in this situation, which one applies? And then, you know, argue it through and, you know, do this for a whole variety of different case studies. I think that's of some limited use, but I don't really teach ethics along those lines when I'm working with my students, although we talk about these things and the three classic ethical frameworks. I think one of the issues with sort of, you know, using case studies is that ethics then becomes, you know, that these case studies are often things that seem far off and remote from everyday life. There are these sort of dilemmas that arise infrequently that seem very remote from everyday life. And then at these times, then you pull ethics off the shelf in order to inform how you're going to approach these problems. And I think that this is not not very helpful to think this way. And that ethics has to be seen more holistically, more comprehensively as sort of in an all of life kind of framework. I rely a lot on N.T. Wright's writing in his book, After You Believe, where he actually comments too, you know, the virtue ethics is something that that's quite appealing to Christians. It goes back to ancient Greek thought, but he looks at the New Testament and he says, really, you know, the it's not so much the word virtue that's used there, but the notion of Christian character. And it's Christian character not as an individual project, but it involves working in community. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It involves becoming essentially more like Jesus, right? And involves all kinds of different spiritual practices. And so this N.T. Wright sort of corrective, I I find really helpful to kind of see ethics as they're described in the New Testament. And I think the story idea is an important one. One of the things about doing all these case studies is, you know, it's somewhat subjective, which framework you use and how you argue it and so on. But the idea of a story is that, you know, while we've talked about sort of the Enlightenment story, there's also the biblical story, of course. And N.T. Wright has this fascinating example where when he's talking about ethics, he talks about how do we do this? And he talks about, you know, the example of consider that there was this long lost Shakespearean play, which is found and the final act is missing, but it's such a, you know, it's such a wonderful play that somehow people want to put it on. And so how do you go about this, right? One way to do it would be to have, you know, some writer write the final act. But he says a more sort of interesting way, a more perhaps true way of doing this would be to invite Shakespearean actors, right, who are totally immersed in sort of the story of Shakespeare and have read all the prior 
chapters and are immersed in his work and the trajectory of the narrative, and they improvise the final ending of the story. And he likens that to us as Christians living in this in-between time, right? We have the story of, of creation, fall, redemption of the early church. We know how it ends. We have the story of a new heaven and a new earth, and we live into that story, and that informs how we live in the current time in which we find ourselves, right? Becoming more like Jesus, equipped and shaped to know how to respond in our context in a way that is, you know, reflects God's desire for his creation, for his world. Yeah. I want to follow up on what you've just said in linking this to the trolley problem specifically as it relates to the trend in autonomous agents, particularly cars. And this is where I think computer scientists are finding that idea of ethics most applicable is what does a car with computer vision do when it sees one person there and five over there? Or should I crash the car versus killing a person? So how does this idea of, you know, the computational reductionist view of the world, everything's a machine and the machine will have to make a decision and it doesn't have wisdom like a human or God and it needs the trolley problem training? Yeah, this is, you know, the subject of a lot of research and ongoing, you know, work and industry right now. Machine learning is an area where I think we're still trying to figure some of these things out. I know you're involved in AI and faith, as I am, where we're trying to think about, you know, how do 2,000 years of Christian social thought sort of inform, and, and other faiths, in the case of AI and faith, it's a interfaith dialogue. How do they inform, you know, how to approach these kinds of things? I think, you know, a helpful way to begin is to think about, you know, what sort of things ought we to automate? What sort of things are going to require, ought we not to automate? You know, so things like, you know, child minding robots and elder care robots are things that I would say there's something about, you know, giving care to other people as a human with a human is something that's that's part of our responsibility and our calling that we shouldn't automate or offload to machines. And then I think there's a category of things where perhaps some combination of human and machine are helpful. You know, Fred Brooks, a famous computer scientist, once talked about how we're all trying to build all these large brains called AI, but instead we should be thinking more about IA, you know, intelligence augmentation, you know, having machines working alongside people. So I think wisdom uh, will need to be used to discern applications where automation is appropriate and where it's not appropriate and where it is appropriate then to say, okay, what are the kinds of scenarios that we need to we need to think about and how do we safeguard? And it's not just safety, it's, you know, bias, it's justice, it's all of these sorts of things that I think there's increasing awareness of. You know, the book uh, Weapons of Math Destruction comes to mind as a warning, you know, about, that's Kathy O'Neill's book. It's a stark warning about how, you know, a lot of these training sets include these sorts of bias that then become codified and then they end up being amplified because they're being used all over. And so there's a call there to think about, you know, how do we make sure that we we ensure that there's justice and transparency and so on included in the design and development of these things. And that's not an easy task. No. And that actually leads beautifully into where I want to detour for a second. And that is the debate about determinism in technology. Now, you're at Calvin College and you are a reformed believer. Calvinism has a reputation, deserved or not, as being all about predestination, largely based on a handful of scriptures like John 6.44 and Romans 8.29 
9, Ephesians 1, 5, some people have conflated religious predestination with technical determinism, arguing that we don't really have a free will. Going back to what you said, hey, there are things we shouldn't do with AI and autonomy in agents aside from ourselves, but rather that our futures are determined for us, whether by God or other forces. So what do you say about that, Derek? How are theological and technological determinism different from each other? And how might we have a better understanding of this? Okay, wow. Let me take a stab at this. Let me start by saying I've been a Reformed Christian all my life, but the whole notion of predestination and so on has never been something that I've fretted or dwelt on very much. Calvin himself, John Calvin, didn't really spend a lot of time writing or thinking about this, certainly not in in his writings or in his institutes. I think the purpose of it was mostly as a comfort that God, I mean, it begins with the premise that God is sovereign, right? That's sort of a starting point in Reformed thinking. God is sovereign. And so this idea that, you know, he holds everything in his hands and he's in control is one that's meant to be a comfort to Christians, right? It has to do with the perseverance of the saints, of knowing that your salvation is secure, that nothing can thwart God's plans. The idea of technological determinism is a lot more troubling. It's the idea, you know, it's the idea that technology is in control. It's an autonomous force beyond our control, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're on this bus that's hurtling down the road, and we don't know who's driving it or where it's going. And I also have problems with that. I think that God created us with freedom and responsibility. Now, some Reformed theologians have talked about two sides of a coin. There's God's sort of sovereignty on one side, and then on the flip side of the coin is our freedom and responsibility. They're both there somehow, and it's hard to kind of hold them both in your hand at the same time, but it's like two sides of a coin. And so with technological determinism too, I say we always have freedom and responsibility. We may allow technology to take us to places if we passively allow it to kind of unfold as it will, or we allow certain ideologies or certain things to sort of unfold without our thoughtful kind of responsible control, then we will reap the consequences to be sure. But I think the idea of God being in control is is a comfort. And the idea of letting technology have its way is not comforting. It's something we want to avoid. So technological determinism, I'm not a believer, but I, you know, when you read people like Jacques Alal, you see very quickly, you know, the consequences of a kind of world as it unfolds, if we make absolute efficiency, sort of the thing that we sort of optimize on for every area of life, there'll be consequences and we'll reap those. But I think the Reformed doctrine of God's sovereignty is one that's just very comforting. You know, there's this Reformed testimony called Our World Belongs to God. And it's basically an incredible comfort knowing that our world belongs to God. We are not our own. We belong. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. We belong body and soul, life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a pastoral comforting thing, but it doesn't release us of responsibility. God still calls us to act responsibly and that we live quorum Deo, right, before the face of God, and and we're called to act and respond obediently, also in the cultural area of technology. So, yeah. Well, and interestingly, God being sovereign and good, and technology companies wanting your eyeballs and your money, we often see this determinism play out in terms of you either accept or decline the app, right? It's binary. And the choice we have makes us say, well, if I don't say yes to giving you all my data, I can't have the app. And God has given us a world which we do have access to, even if we don't say yes to him. 
And so there's this wonderful tension of free will on that end. And then this... Yeah, and open source software plays into there too, right? If you don't like the way things are unfolding, there's the opportunity with the tools that we have to redirect them and to come up with alternatives that are more normative in a lot of ways. Well, and so maybe this conversation is just opening eyes to say we're not tied to these technical decisions. We have agency and we should speak up and uh, so on. So let's take this conversation about determinism a little further. You talk in your chapter in the Christian Field Guide called Technology in the Future about technical optimism and pessimism, which I think you've given us a nice snapshot of, you know, one or the other there. But you also bring both science fiction, particularly in visual media like film, and the Bible into the conversation. So let's talk a little more about what role narrative structures play in shaping our understanding of technology and our vision of the future? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I love movies and science fiction movies. And someone once said, you know, the artists get there first, you know, they're sort of culturally upstream from us. And I think that a lot of these sort of narratives can be helpful kind of what if kind of imaginative explorations of what happens if we don't, you know, steward our technology properly, or these are excellent sort of stories that sort of exhibit certain worldviews, right? You know, the the highly optimistic stories, of which there's very few, I might add. It doesn't make for good theater either, probably. But, you know, the, the one that comes to mind, and I write about this a little bit in my chapter about technology in the future in A Christian Field Guide to Technology, is the original Star Trek, which I think had a lot of optimism in it, right? Boldly going where no man has gone before to new places and new civilizations and, you know, an era where mankind has, uh, humankind has solved war and and hunger. And uh, by their wits, they're able to solve every problem. By their wits and technology, they're able to solve every problem that they encounter in, in each episode. And I actually quote one of the characters from one episode, which is basically, I think, a little bit of a encapsulation of the original Star Trek worldview, which reflects, I think, probably the worldview of Gene Roddenberry, the producer of Star Trek. But there's very few of these sort of uh, utopian uh, sort of movies. Like most of them are very pessimistic. You know, the iconic one that comes to mind is uh, Terminator, you know, where machines turn on their creators and destroy them, which is basically a sort of retelling of the Frankenstein narrative of sorts. And I think these are sort of helpful ways of thinking about the consequences of uh, technology when we take it into certain directions or when we ignore responsibility. I think it's, it's a helpful sort of parable. One movie that I find actually really, really helpful and which I really like and is delightful, and I mentioned also in the book, is Wally. Wally is a beautiful parable, right? I mean, it, it sort of depicts these humans who are, you know, sort of aboard this ark being looked after by uh, automation systems, totally passive and just a shadow of what it means to be a human being fully alive, right? These sort of obese humans sitting in lazy boy chairs, being scurried about by machines, watching screens passively while slurping, you know, slurpees. But at the end, right, you see this moment when the ship's captain, you know, wrestles control away from the automated system and redirects the ship back to Earth, where they take this fledgling green plant back where there's, you know, the suggestion that, you know, things are going to start anew and humankind is going to go back to their original calling, right, to cultivate the Earth and to unfold its potential and to care for it. 
So it's a movie that has sort of the picture of the consequences of, you know, the destruction of the earth that could come with irresponsible use of technology, but the hope of what happens when we take our rightful responsibility and how that can unfold. So it's a beautiful tale. That's a spoiler alert, by the way, too. Yeah, no. And there's maybe a couple of them in there that I should have have noted before. But the other side of what you're talking about from the film industry, the Bible predated that by some decades <laughs> to say the least. And this idea of the new heaven and the new earth is this future that you're referring to. So how do you see the two married? I mean, this narrative structure of hope and renewal and redemption is present both in some of the literature of science fiction, those stories that are positive, and for sure, the Bible. Right. I think that this Christian hope has been something that's been very powerful in, in animating all kinds of stories. The big difference, of course, being that in the Christian story, it's not us who usher in the new heavens and the new earth, right? The Bible's very clear about either making technology the villain or the savior. Neither of those things is the case. And so I think we have to have this corrective to realize it won't be by our efforts that the new heavens and the new earth will be brought. You know, it'll come when Jesus returns. And the Bible's clear, the builder and architect is God. Now, by his grace, you know, some of the honor and glory of the nations may be brought into it once they're purified from sin. But it's not going to be by our wits or by our work or by our hands that that will come. And that's a good thing. So I see that as being very distinctive between stories that depict either the destruction, right? Uh, you know, seeing technology as the villain or seeing technology as the savior. And neither of those things coincide with what the biblical story tells us. Well, and, and we see that in Zechariah 4, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah. Another quote verse from Zechariah that I find amazing is there's a point in Zechariah where they mention, holy to the Lord will be emblazoned on the pots and pans, right? <laughs> and, and the cowbells, you know, there's this verse that, you know, you see ordinary everyday things in Zechariah that are being consecrated, purified, redeemed, and made holy to the Lord. And I think that's what it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. All of these things will be made holy to the Lord and, and he will purify them. There'll be this cosmic kind of purification. Gives new meaning to we need more cowbell. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, and by the same token, I like the fact that you've brought up the idea that we make technology the villain because Satan is the villain and it's his forces, both spiritually and physically, that we should be focused on. And I think we often sub in technology for him as well as for God. So, well, listen, I know you read a lot, Derek, and I've already added a lot of books to my own reading list, thanks to you, both our conversations and the work that you write yourself. But I, I'd like you to share a couple of books, maybe two or three, that have made an impact on you, and then say why you'd recommend them to our listeners. I like to expand people's reading lists in various ways. Yeah, thanks for giving me an opportunity to do that. I should be very quick to add using sort of computer science lingo, when it comes to theology and philosophy, I'm a user and not a developer. So a lot of the stuff that I've, <laughs> you know, that I've been able to make use of is, is you know, I'm grateful for the cloud of witnesses that have, you know, written about these things and, and helped me also mentors in my own life. One book in particular that I can point to where that is the case is the book Creation Regained 
Biblical Basics for a Reformational Worldview by Albert M. Walters. Al Walters was a colleague of mine at Redeemer University when I taught there in a small computer science department for many years, and I was really grateful to him for helping me shape a Reformational worldview, a, a Christian worldview. And that book has been very transformative in terms of my ability to connect the dots between my faith and my technical work. Another book that's more recent, if you do want to think more deeply about, you know, a Christian philosophy of technology is Craig Gay's book, A Modern Technology and the Human Future, A Christian Appraisal. That's an IVP academic book by Craig Gay from, I believe, Regent College. And he writes a wonderful book that uncovers a lot of the philosophical presuppositions in today's technological world. And then finally, a book I've referenced already earlier is an N.T. Wright's book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. That book for me has been really helpful in thinking Christianly about ethics, as I mentioned earlier. So those are three books that I would recommend. Yeah, and I'm staring at an entire shelf full behind you. And knowing how you think, Derek, I would use the word curator rather than user, because what you do in your work is bring these other authors and thinkers into line of sight, for me anyway. So I appreciate that. Well, as we close, I'd like you to talk about how you chose to close your book, The Christian Field Guide to Technology, with a series of letters exchanged between a young engineer and his former professor and mentor. Now, I don't want to do a whole spoiler alert thing. Well, wait, it's not a spoiler alert. It's a spoiler if we tell it. But we can at least say these were centered on the topic of how we can live out our faith in a real world context. And I wonder why you chose this personal letter format to tackle these practical issues. I also wondered if it was slightly autobiographical, given that I know a bit about you and how you framed these. And here's the third part of that question. So do it in stages. What does the comic strip character Dilbert have to do with the biblical prophet Daniel? <laughs> Yeah, good question. So yes, the last chapter is, is one that I wrote in A Christian Field Guide to Technology. And it, it is informed quite a bit by my own experience. As I mentioned earlier, I worked for almost a decade as an engineer in industry. But I've also, you know, been in ongoing conversations with alumni, with students who've also come to me, you know, expressing some of the challenges that they face in their work. And so this final chapter, you know, letters to a young engineer is basically a set of letters exchanged between a recent graduate and a Christian college professor, an older Christian college professor who worked in industry for a time, giving him some advice and some encouragement. And I thought that was just a helpful way to kind of model also how we as Christians need mentors and people who embody a worldview for us in order to encourage us along the way, the way that I've experienced in my own life. I think there's elements of, of well, the, the young student or the recent alumni in the exchange of the letters, his name is Daniel, which is no coincidence, is working on the West Coast for a high-tech company. And he shares with his professor, his former professor, you know, some of the, the struggles. And, and it actually opens with him saying he feels like a Dilbert. And when I was in industry, I used to have Dilbert comics on my cubicle and used to commiserate with some of the, some of the things that would be expressed, you know, living in a drab cubicle cubicle farm and thinking about what it means to be a Christian. It goes back to, you know, where my thinking originally started on all of this, sitting in a cubicle farm, wondering 
How do I connect bites and beliefs? And of course, uh, the professor encourages him and tells him to maybe think more about Daniel than Dilbert as a model. And Daniel, who was in Babylon in a place where there was very few who shared his faith, where he had to live out his faith and continue his spiritual practices in, in a place that was not hospitable to that. You know, in Jeremiah 29, we read about how God is speaking to the Israelites in Babylon and saying, you know, you need to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. You need to pray for it. And this professor encourages the student to pray for his workplace and for his workmate and for the work that he does. And then encourages him too, right, to continue spiritual practices, gives him some advice on a few specific issues that come up, which come are described in the exchange of letters and encourages him to continue to be a faithful presence. And then reminds him that his Christian sort of calling goes beyond his paid work, that he's called to be a member of a community and a church and uh, cultivating spiritual practices, going back to the importance of Christian character that we talked about earlier when we talked about ethics. So I hope it's an encouragement to young engineers, but also a model in as much as it can be in these few short letters of a way that more experienced Christians can encourage younger Christians in the field of technology to remain faithful in their callings and in their vocations. Derek Sherman, it's always illuminating and inspiring to talk to you. So I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.